invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We started looking at a passage last week, just uh, here at the beginning of the year, to talk about the gospel. And we're looking at the gospel from really Paul's example in Acts chapter 17 when he was speaking to the men of Athens and witnessing to them. We're trying to look at a pattern for witnessing. some of the key elements in witnessing. Last week, we heard testimonies from both Blake and Natalie. Blake and Natalie over here. Raise your hands, please. Yes, yes. Hi, hi. Very good. Yeah, okay. Uh, If you didn't hear that, it should be online. Uh, If not already, it should be on there soon. And um, both Blake and Natalie grew up going to church uh, and heard the gospel a a number of times, but came to faith last year here at Grace Church. So uh, really exciting to hear their testimonies, and they're going to be baptized later this year, Lord willing. So um, we, uh, we talked about, we heard their testimonies last week, and we started to talk about this passage from Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 22 through 34 is really where our focus is. But I wanted to begin this morning by asking the question, what are some of the things that prevent you from sharing the gospel uh, with others? What are some of the reasons why we don't share it or why we maybe don't share it clearly? Either one of those questions. Why, why is it that sometimes, yes, fear of man. Yeah, that's a real thing. And it shouldn't be, right? Because this is the most important truth uh, that anyone could hear who is lost. Yes. Sure. So, so personal sin might prevent you from sharing the gospel because you're recognizing the the inconsistency inconsistency in your own life, which is a reminder for you to deal with your sin and the importance of that. Yeah. What are some other reasons? Yeah, Paulo. Yeah. Lack of relationship with someone. I think uh, one of my um, uh, favorite quotes is from a a small book by J.I. Packer called uh, Evangelism of the Sovereignty of God. He quotes someone else in there, and he says, whenever you have earned the right to choose the topic of conversation, choose the topic of topics, Jesus Christ. I like that because it has this idea that you do need to earn the right to choose the topic of conversation. I've told the story before of a man that used to stand out in front of the church I grew up in in Orange County down in Seal Beach. He didn't come to our church, but he stood out in front there, and he used to, as people would walk by, he would light a match, and he'd blow it out and hold it under their nose and say, smell that? That's what hell smells like, (laughs) right? Just a little bit creepy, right? Yeah. um, So just to be clear, I'm not advocating that we do this. I think that you haven't really earned the right to choose the topic with those people. You, you can oftentimes do more harm than good. Uh, I would say this, that sometimes you can earn that right within a few minutes. You know, you sit down on a, in an airplane or a bus and you start talking to someone and they ask you a question that leads to uh, you being able to share your faith. It could happen within a, uh, five minutes. Um, for other people, it might take five days or five hours, or five days, or five weeks, sometimes even five months to build that relationship to get to a point where you have an opportunity where you can share the gospel. But I will say this, if it's taking you five years, it's probably too long. 
Yeah. Right. So maybe a lack of trust in the Spirit's work rather than, than, than maybe you're putting too much on yourself. And I think um, uh, that is uh, endemic of our, of our society, of our Christian culture, in the sense that sometimes evangelistic organizations measure their success by the number of conversions, which is a wrong way to measure it because uh, it leads to easy believism, it leads to a weak gospel, it leads to God has a wonderful plan for your life rather than, rather than um, uh, really pre- uh, preaching the gospel clearly. It is not our responsibility to save others. We cannot save others. It is our responsibility, however, to proclaim the gospel. Uh, what are some other... Uh, yes? Not knowing enough, right. So, um, and... and and uh, so you might be young in the faith, and so which is why we, it's important to be a part of a church and be a part of growing in the faith, because as you grow, you know a lot more than somebody who is not in the faith, um, sometimes even if they're Bible knowledge. Um, I, I remember um, I was witnessing one time to a, a guy, I was on a mission trip, and, and we were witnessing doing street evangelism, and and uh, I was sharing Christ with him, and he says, well, your Bible contradicts itself. And I said, uh, uh, I don't believe it does. And he quoted chapter and verse. He said uh, in Deuteronomy here, it says that the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. And yet in Matthew 5 through 7, it says, um, your brother uh, hits you, turn your cheek. And those are, those are two contradictory truths taught by the Bible. You can't have an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, and at the same time, turn your cheek. And uh, I thought to myself, wow, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. And so I said to him, I don't know the answer, but I believe the Bible has the answer. If you meet me back here tonight, I will share this. I'll, I'll find the answer to this afternoon. And he met me back at that same street that night. And, um, and uh, so I went, and uh, uh, that afternoon, of course, I was searching. And, 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 and the answer to that question is that in the Old Testament, God was teaching the leaders of Israel to judge justly when they ruled the nation. And so that's why he says, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, because government leaders should be fair and just. But people were taking that personally and applying it to personal relationships, which is why Jesus said, you have heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, if your brother hits you, turn your cheek um, and, and so, so it's this idea that you, you can overlook transgression. You can show uh, forgiveness and generosity, and you can be wronged um, as an individual. And so the focus wasn't on, don't take, don't take laws that are meant for governments and apply it to every personal relationship you have. I have to have justice. And that's what he was pointing out. So they exist together in harmony, those two truths. And, but it's not apparent at the first time. So I think... One way to get over that, that hill of I don't know enough about the Bible is to say, well, um, just to come out and say, listen, I don't have all the answers, but I will help find them. I have resources. I know people who can help me through this. So you ask any question, and I can't promise I'll give you the answer, but I will look for it. What's another reason why we don't evangelize? Yes. Oh, that we might be labeled intolerant. Yeah. 
which is kind of a misnomer, right? Because the only thing that people are intolerant of are people who are not tolerant, right? So it's kind of circular. But, um, but that goes back to the fear of man, doesn't it? Because uh, really, if, and, and this is related to something else that I've been fishing for. I haven't found it. But what I'm looking for is a lack of compassion for others. I think that this world distracts us so effectively that we get so self-absorbed and focused on ourselves and our own little world that we tend to have a lack of compassion for those who are around us who are lost. And so when we, when we look at our passage, in fact, if you go back to verse uh, 16 of Acts chapter uh, 17, it says that uh, the spirit was provoked within him. Paul was walking around the city of Athens, and he was really um, uh, disturbed um, just by the, the, all the idols, all the idolatry that was out there. And uh, this was troubled him. And I just wonder, uh, I think that when we watch the news or we look at the world, I think we get saddened thinking, man, the world is going downhill. Um, this place is becoming worse. Rather than thinking, man, we need to be more vigilant. I need to be more vigilant in reaching out to this world because it's becoming clearer and clearer that it's getting darker and darker and they need the light. And so that's really where we need to be. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, back in verse 15 all the way through the end of the chapter, 15 through 34 of Acts chapter 17. You can follow along with me. It says in Acts chapter 17, beginning of verse 15, Now those who escorted Paul and brought him as far as Athens and received a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching is this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people, all to people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, 
so that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. Being then children of God, we ought not to think think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some of the men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We're looking at verses 22 through 34 of Acts chapter 17, and we're focusing on six essential elements six essential truths that need to be taught if people are going to understand the message of God. And the first one we saw last week, and that is that there is a God. Paul starts with the fact that there is a God. He stood there declaring, men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all respects. The Oropagus was a a court. It was a group of men uh, who were named by a hill that in ancient years, hundreds of years before that, they met on that rocky outcrop there in Athens. And so they became known as the Areopagus. He's probably in some kind of uh, uh, marketplace or something. And they weren't, he was not on formal trial. They just want to hear what he's teaching. He's teaching something new. They hadn't heard it. And those from Athens loved to talk about theology. And Paul, uh, traditionally, when he was speaking to pagans, he began by declaring there's a God and referring to general revelation, the fact that they know through creation that there is a God. He does that in Acts chapter 14, verses 15 through 17, when he's talking to the men of Lystra. When he speaks to Jews, he begins with the Old Testament, and we see that time and time again. He goes in the synagogue, grabs the scriptures, Acts um, um, chapter 15, verses 10 10 through 13, when he's speaking to the Bereans is another example of that. But we saw last week that everyone knows that there is a God. There is no, true, no such thing as an atheist in the truest sense of the word uh, because externally there is evidence that there is a God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork, Psalm 19.1. So Psalm 19.1 says that everybody looks and it's clear that creation had to begin somewhere. There is an uncaused first cause. Or, or if there's no God, then it's how did the first cause begin? How was it caused? But internally, they also know, because in Romans 1.19, it says, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident within them. So we begin talking about God, and uh, we, instead of trying to prove that there is a God without using the Scriptures, we are free to use the Scriptures and just declare that this is the God of the Bible that we're talking about, and allow them, when we're talking with people about God, Since God has revealed himself through a book, we bring them to the book. And we let them say that, uh, well, they don't believe that's God's word. And then we say, well, now just prove that to me. Show that to me. Show me its inconsistencies. Because 
really, we know that God needs to grab their heart, and he does that through his word. And so put them at odds with God's word. Don't put them at odds with you. Let them fight against God's word. We see that um, there's a second key ingredient in a gospel message or a second truth, and that is that he is all-powerful. Number one, there is a God, and number two, he is all-powerful. We looked at that last week, and we saw four characteristics that demonstrate he is all-powerful. The characteristics is that he is the creator of all, the ruler of all, the sustainer of all, and sovereign over all. And if you take a look at verses 24 through uh, 26, you'll see all four of those laid out in that order. Take a look at verse 24. We see that God is the creator of all. It says, the God who made the world and all things in it. Pretty all-conclusive there. God is the creator of all. He's also the ruler of all. Carries on in verse 24, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He is the ruler. He's not served. He doesn't need us to conjure him up or anything like that. He is ruler. Not only is he creator and ruler, he is sustainer of all. He gives everything life and breath. And it says in verse 25 in the middle, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. So each day is a gift by God. We are here, we are breathing today only because of God's goodness towards us. He sustains us. And then he is sovereign over all. It says, uh, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their their habitation. So every nation has its own boundaries and exists only because of God. Uh, he is sovereign over everything. He ordains the number of your days and where you will go and where you will not go and what nations will exist and what nations will not exist. He is God. He is omnipotent. Now, we say, when we say that God is omnipotent, we, mean all, we say all-powerful. And we are saying, in essence, in summarizing that by saying that he is creator, ruler, sustainer, and sovereign. But many people don't like to hear that because... Deep down, each one of us wants to somehow say that we're in control of our life. There's a f- poem that was made famous called Invictus. It was made famous, it was famous before this, but especially famous from Nelson Mandela, who had written it on a blank wall in his prison cell. And um, the last verse says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And... Uh, I think that the author of that poem was trying to say that your outlook determines a lot on how you will do in life. And so there is a certain truth to that, but he does not recognize the one true creator God. He, um, uh, his poem is flawed because your outlook does not determine your destiny. You are not master of your fate. You are not the captain of your soul. God is all-powerful. And God is the one who is in control, and we are rebels against God. Um, and uh, you are headed for destruction. We are, uh, scripture talks about those who remain in their sin, those who remain in the condition of their sin. Um, even John 3.16, when we think about that famous passage, um, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then verse 17 says, um, 
Uh, for God did not send the world to judge the world, but that he might be saved, saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he is not only he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And so you're already judged. You're already condemned. You're, you're remaining condemned if you do not repent. Um, but uh, when we talk about the fact that God is all-powerful, are there any questions about that? Do, do people ask you questions if you were to say, well, God is all-powerful? What are some of the responses people say to you when you declare that he is uh, sovereign or in control or all-powerful? Yes? Why do bad things happen? And, that, and we're, we're going to look at that. That's related to his holiness, which is our third uh, step, which is our third uh, truth that we're looking at, that God is holy, that he is holy. Um, but, the, but they also, have you ever heard this question? Sometimes people say, um, well, if God can do anything, then can he build a rock that is so big that he can't lift it? Have you heard questions like that? There are questions that relate to God, and, and they, they, they try to pose it in such a way where they're, it's really a false dichotomy. They're trying to, to pose a question where there's something that's irresistible and something that's immovable. And you can't have both of those exist in the same universe because if it's irresistible, then it can move it. And so you can't have something immovable, but if it's immovable, then you can't be irresistible. And so do you understand that? Uh, these questions, get, you know, and they throw them out there and they think they got you stumped. If God, is so, if God can do everything, if God can do anything, then can he build a rock that is so big that he can't lift it? And they think they've got you stumped because... Uh, uh, either he's not big enough to do it, or or he can't do it. I, I don't know. It's just, it's just like your mind's like, okay, so what's going on here? So so what's the answer to that? When we say that God is omnipotent, we're not saying that he can do anything. Because there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 God cannot die. He is eternal. God cannot act against his nature. Therefore, he would cease being God, and he cannot cease being who he is. And so when we talk about omnipotence, we're not saying, equating that with God can do anything. What we're saying there is that no part of creation stands outside of his sovereign control. He would never create something bigger outside of where his control or power is because that would destroy his omnipotence. And by doing that, he would stop being God and he cannot stop being God. So I think uh, it's really, it starts with a false premise. We are saying that there is a God and we are saying that he is all powerful. But a third key ingredient in a gospel message that, that is in the truth is that God is holy. He's holy. He's, there is a God, he's all-powerful, and he's holy. And this is where we get to that question that was raised about, well, if God is really all-powerful, how can he allow evil to exist? Well, first of all, before we discuss that, we need to talk about God's holiness because he is holy. When I was young, one of the first prayers that I was taught to pray, a very simple prayer, 
is that God is good, God is great, let us thank you for this food, amen. I think it was supposed to rhyme, but good and food don't really rhyme. So, um, but anyways, God is good, or, you know, God is great, God is good, let us thank you for this, see, I don't even remember it, uh, God is great, God is good, let us thank you for this food, uh, <laughs> amen. Right? It sounds better coming out of a young voice, right? But here's what's great about that is that that simple prayer, greatness and goodness summarize what holiness is all about. Oftentimes when we think about holiness, we think about this idea of pure, righteous, and that, that is part of that goodness. But the greatness is actually uh, the, really a huge part of his holiness, that he is other, that he is completely separate. The word holy comes from a word which means to separate, or to cut. We have expressions in English like, oh, this, this, this supermarket is a cut above the rest or something like that. It's a, it's, it, it, and it's a similar expression. God is separate. He's a cut above every, he's other. And Paul tries to uh, demonstrate that, even quoting things that their own poets had recognized. And he says in verse 27 that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us in him, for we live and move and exist. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children, being the children of God, we ought to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He's saying that God is holy, that God is completely other. And this is different than the way sometimes we share the gospel with others. We say things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. The problem with that is instead of focusing on who God is and his holiness, we jump right into you. And it can become very man-centered. And so you're thinking, okay, well, well a, a plan for my life, that sounds good. But the reality is he is holy. And if you're not holy and you're not willing to repent, he doesn't have a wonderful plan for your life. He has a terrible plan for your life. And you need to hear about this. But first, let me tell you about his holiness. In Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, it says, For I am the Lord your God, and you shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Be holy for I am holy. This is God's greatness, his apartness, his transcendence. Those who, uh, who, who think that God is some sort of thing that man has made up, first of all, that they know there's a God, and he, if he's the creator and ruler and sustainer, how can they think that he's made up? How can they think that we worship an idol that man has created. You see the foolishness in that. And you see Paul's logic as he begins with that there is a God and he is all-powerful. And now he's holy. He is other. Um, in spite of the fact that he is the creator and sustainer of life, in, fi- in spite of the fact that he establishes different nat- nations and empires, in, sta- in spite of the fact that he is not far from us, he is holy. He is separate. He is great. And we know that he has reflected his, his goodness. We know that he's good because he has established a law. In Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments, and, and we, we see that 
We should have no other gods before him, that worshiping any other god or anything above him is, is, is wrong, that we should have no graven images, not worshiping anything he has made or a false representation of him. We should not take his name in vain. Using his name in vain is a way that brings disrepute upon his character. We should remember the Sabbath, and the Sabbath is a, a principle from the Old Testament of rest, and it was a gift that, that man could rest, could have a day of rest. And it was in, 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 in the New Testament, in Colossians 2.16, it talks about the fact that for those who are in Christ, uh, there, there is no Sabbath. For those who were believers, those who were Jews who wanted to worship in the Sabbath, they could still, but uh, the, the Sabbath pointed towards Christ and the rest that he would bring. And so we appreciate it. We're grateful for it. Um, but at the same time, uh, those who say, well, uh, the Sabbath is, is really, we're not, we're not part of that era. Sabbath means seventh. We are no longer uh, mandated as Israel was to set aside the seventh day and not work, right? Have you seen some of these new ovens? They have the Sabbath control. Yeah, it's, I don't know what it, I think it keeps the light off or something like that or something. I don't know, you can set it the day before and the oven comes on so you're not pushing switches. Uh, there's technology is amazing. But anyways, but you, don't, you don't need it. You have the freedom. You can do it. You can turn that knob. Uh, uh, and and, and uh, because uh, Colossians 2, verse 16, points out that we have freedom here. Um, I think you can take that too far, and I think you could say, well, I don't, I don't need to. I mean, in, in a sense, I'm thankful that, uh, see, I don't, I don't want to get too far down this trail, but let me just try and summarize it this way. There are those Christians who believe that the Sabbath has changed and now it is Sunday and they're called Sunday Sabbatarians and they rely on the Westminster Confession of Faith and other documents like that to point to that Sunday is now a day of rest. And so there are some who are very strict and you cannot, you know, play sports or watch sports or, you know, wash your car or mow your lawn, you know, something like that on a Sunday, right? And there are others who say, no, we, we're in the New Testament now, the New Testament era a new dispensation, and, and so we have freedom because we follow the Ten Commandments, but every one of the Ten Commandments is repeated in the New Testament except for the Sabbath. It's actually mentioned in Colossians 2 as something that we no longer need to observe like the Jews did. We have freedom. Um, and so uh, it, it really has to do with how much continuity you see between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and different churches have different perspectives on that. Um, and so, um, uh, but the principle here is that God rested as an example for us, that rest is a good thing, and ultimately it's going to be fulfilled by Christ when we are in eternal rest with him, and we look forward to that. Honor your father and mother is something that uh, you know, remember the rich young ruler uh, in Mark chapter 10 said, all these things I've kept from my youth up. Honoring is from your heart. He never dishonored his parents. Impossible. Uh, do, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not covet. And so this place is a big dilemma 
because God's word says that God is holy, which means he is above us and he is good. And yet when we try to be good, we fail. And scripture points that out. We know that we're sinners. And so we know we are not holy. And so in answer to that question about God's holiness, God, because God is, and and how does he allow evil to exist? He allows evil to exist because being transcendent over all, he allows, uh, uh, he has allowed Satan to not only fall, but he has allowed him to influence others to bring about more glory to himself ultimately. Much like when you see a, a diamond, we've got a, a lot of engagements going on here and, and babies and young group, right? 16 babies last year. 16. Let's go. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but engagements, you know, you, you go look at a stone and they take it out of that glass case and they put it, they don't, they don't just show you in front of the glass case with all the other rings behind it. They put down a dark black piece of velvet. Why? Because its brilliance shines even brighter. And against the backdrop of sin, God's grace and mercy, his goodness, we wouldn't see his goodness if we didn't know what evil was. And so he has allowed evil to exist. And yet we know, Romans 8, 28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God uses everything for good. He does not cause the evil, but he ordains it. He allows it for a period until he will defeat it to show his goodness. And we know this because he took the most evil act that ever could be done by nailing Jesus Christ to the cross, and he used that for the best gift that could ever be given, and that is eternal life through faith in Christ. It says in Acts 2, verses 23 and 24, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it is impossible for him to be held in its power. And so we have this idea that God is holy, which leads us to a fourth key ingredient, and that is God is gracious. God is gracious. This is the good news. This gospel means good news. So far, it's been um, that, that God, there is a God, and that he is transcendent, and he is holy, and that should put in us a sense of fear because we know that we're not holy, but there's some good news. God is gracious, and it's expressed briefly in this passage. Remember, there's no exact formula. Paul never repeats the same formula twice. The gospel writers don't give you some kind of formula. They keep on talking about and explaining the gospel, but this God is gracious. Take a look at Acts 17, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance. We say, well, what are these times of ignorance, and how does God overlook ignorance? He's not saying that he overlooks consequences for sin. There is always consequence for sin. And make no mistake about it, sin is never worth it. You're deceived. It's a lie to think that it's worth it. And the reason you believe that is because he doesn't strike you dead immediately when you do it. Because he overlooks times of ignorance. That's grace. But that leads you to take advantage of his mercy and his grace. Because you think, well, I did it. It didn't seem like you know, anything bad happened. 
So somehow you deceive yourself to think that sin is somehow worth it, and sin is never worth it. And so you begin, the, you begin to believe these lies that are totally against God's word. And so um, just to, to give an idea of what this time, these times of ignorance, let's take a look at a few passages that, that speak about these times. One of them would be Acts 17, verse 23. Um, we read earlier, it says in Acts 17, 23, in the middle of verse, I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. He, he says to, the, to the, the men of Athens, you've got all these idols to all these false gods, but you knew you were missing something. And so just to try and cover yourself, you made a catch-all idol. You made a statue to the unknown God or a monument to the one that you don't know about, that you've forgotten. And that's the one I'm proclaiming to you. He's not worshiped by making an idol to him, but he's overlooked your ignorance. And by grace, he's brought me here now to share the truth with you. Turn back to Acts chapter 14, verses 16 to 17. In Acts chapter 14, um, Verse 16, remember they're in Lystra and, and the people thought because of their, their healing ability that these guys were gods and so they start to worship them. And they tear their shirts and say, hey, we're only men. And um, in verse 16, Paul says, um, Acts 14, 16, in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. Now there he's simply saying that God did not force nations to believe in him. He didn't discipline them immediately for their disobedience like he often did with the nation of Israel. Other nations, he just kind of let them go their own way into their own sin, using Israel as a light for them to say, hey, if we want to know the true God, we need to know the God of Israel, and we need to go speak to the Israelites and find out how we could become proselytes in the Jewish faith. Verse 17 of, of Acts 14, and yet he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Not only did you have Israel, but even if you didn't know of Israel, you knew that there was a God because he was good to you. He blessed you. He's gracious. He gave you rain. He didn't just bless the nations that honored him. He overlooks that. that this is part of who he is. Romans 1 is another passage that reminds us that God gives a certain amount of light to each person that reveals himself, and when they reject that, he allows them to go their own way. Three times in that passage, Romans chapter one, he says, um, and he gave them over, and he gave them over, and they progressively, and you say, well, you know, he only gave them a certain amount of light. Why doesn't he give them more light? If they had more light, maybe they would see. That doesn't make sense. I don't like lima beans. Giving me more of them doesn't make me like them anymore. Maybe my logic isn't really, I mean, I don't know, maybe it would, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you probably less of them would be better for me. Uh, I reject them. I rebel against them. I, I, I refuse them, right? And I don't need more of them to know that. I'm not trying to change your menus if you have us over for dinner, but I'm lima beans. Um, so uh, I'm just thinking about... Uh, God overlooks sin, and people who, according to Romans 1, see a certain amount of light, 
And they know in their heart, Romans 1 says, that there is a God, and yet they turn. They want nothing to do with him because they'll have to deal with their sin. So he allows them to go their own way. But the point is, he doesn't end their lives immediately. God is forbearing. He's gracious. Romans 3, verses 24 through 26 Um, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Two key words from Romans 3, 24 through 26, and that is propitiation and forbearance. Propitiation is appeasement or satisfaction. It's a word often used by those in, uh, I, in, in pagan religions to try and satisfy the, the, the gods out there or appease them. And we learn from Romans 3 that nothing will satisfy the holy God's anger against sin except the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. That death alone appeases, satisfies, causes God to overlook sin forever. And so when we have this idea of forbearance, holding back, um, it's got to take us to the cross. And, And let's go back to now Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 30. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, um, Paul, Paul says, okay, God's overlooked these times of ignorance, but he's not going to wait any longer. And by grace, I'm bringing you this message. And uh, God is coming, which leads us to the fifth essential element in a gospel message. There is a God. He is all-powerful. He is holy. Fourthly, he is gracious. And fifthly, God is just. God is just, he is right, he is fair. Look at verses 30 through 31. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the Bible teaches that sin deserves death. It says the wages of sin is death in Romans 6, 23. Uh, James 1, 15, then when Desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Not only that, but there's nothing you can do to earn your own salvation. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Even the things that we think we can do in our own self-righteousness to try and somehow appease God because we're using our own righteousness, which, is, which is, has selfish motives and is, 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 is infected by sin, uh, it's, it's repulsive to God. And so even the good things that we try and do to appease God are offensive to him because we can't do any good of our own. So that leaves us in a helpless state because Acts 17, 31 says he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. So because there's a God, because he's all-powerful, he's the creator of all, sustainer of all, ruler of all, sovereign over all, because he's a holy God, he's, he's, he's separate from us who are sinners and he's good and we're not, because 
he's demonstrated grace in the past, even though he's done that, people need to know that he will bring down judgment against sin. And as proof of that, he has raised Christ from the dead. The resurrection is an essential element of the gospel. You must believe in the resurrection. Our hope is affirmed because of the resurrection. John Calvin says the resurrection of Christ is the most important article of our faith. Charles Spurgeon said the resurrection of the divine Lord is the cornerstone of Christian doctrine. Perhaps I might accurately call it the keystone of the arch of Christianity, for if that fact could be disproved, the whole fabric of the gospel would fall to the ground. So you have this keystone, you have an arch with stones that come up and the keystone is shaped like a uh, baseball diamond or something like that. And you pull that one out and all the other ones fall down. Why? Because the resurrection holds it all together. Because if Jesus conquered death, and Jesus is God in the flesh who conquered death, and he gives us hope in eternal life. And you want, you want me to give up my faith? Prove the resurrection wrong. Our regeneration depends upon the resurrection. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his grace, great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So we have this idea that, that God will judge. And as proof of that, we have the judge who has been raised from the dead. Brings us to the sixth key ingredient, the one with the hope that we're looking for. He can save. There is a God He is all-powerful, he is holy, he is gracious, he is just, but he can save. Verses 32 through 34 of Acts 17 says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Arapagite. He was one of the the men who met on that council that he was speaking to. He came to faith in Christ and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I think one of the most striking phrases in this last section of chapter 17 is it says, but Paul went out of their midst. Because some of them denied the resurrection. And, and I think that sometimes, this is a reminder that God is sovereign, and you know, Paul never went back to Athens, and we, we don't know that any of them, that, that, that any of those others who heard that, some of them were, were scoffing. Some of them were saying, well, you know, we shall hear you again. And some were sneering and some were... were so, I mean, if, if you're presenting the gospel to someone and they're laughing at you, there's nothing else you can do. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to leave you. But unless you believe these things, you cannot have eternal life. And, and, and it's not just believing, Right? James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. But it's believing on the righteousness of Christ. It's this idea that I'm not just cognitively up here believing, I'm going to trust in Christ's righteousness. That that verse from James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe and shudder. Four verses after that, James 2.23 says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How was Abraham saved? Through faith. He believed God, and that faith 
that God would provide a way to, to take away his sin. Abraham believed in that way. That way ended up being the Messiah. We look back at the Messiah. It's Jesus Christ. You believe on Christ's work on the cross, and that is reckoned or accounted or imputed or credited as righteousness. How can I stand before a holy God as a sinner? Not because of anything I have done, only because I trust in the work of Christ so that when God looks at my life, he says, Christ's righteousness has been credited to my account. And I trust in Christ's righteousness. That is belief. That is faith. That is freedom. And uh, that is what leads you to to be like the man who finds a, a treasure in a field and has joy over it and goes and sells all you have to buy that field. I love that parable, that one verse parable from Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all he has to buy that field. Can you picture this? You're out digging in a field. We don't know whose field it is. Let's say it's government land. Okay, we're not giving those details. But all of a sudden, you, 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 you find a treasure out there. And in antiquity, people didn't put their money in banks. They would bury it. And sometimes they'd be carried off into captivity and die. And nobody, you found this treasure. And so you sell everything you have and your friends are laughing at you. And they're saying, dude, what are you doing? Don't put all your your eggs in one basket, right? That field's not worth what you're paying for it. And you're like, oh, (laughs) if only you knew. And that's what it's like when you find that you can be cleansed of your sin and washed and regenerated and renewed and trust in Christ's righteousness. And the gratitude from that changes your life from the inside out. This is the good news. Those are essential elements. This is what we need to share with people. We have five minutes left. Any questions? We've covered a lot. Yes? Yeah, we don't have an excuse to say that evangelism, just like isn't our gift is the question, and and that's true because we, we are expected to testify. We're expected to testify just like I can't say some might have the gift of giving where they find great joy in being extra generous, and God has equipped them to do that, everyone still has responsibility to give as well, right? So we are gifted in different ways and excel in different ways, but we must proclaim the truth. Other questions? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. So the question is how do you reconcile the command to be holy when we know that we're sinners and in the Old Testament because the word holy means separate and other it it's a call that you be a, a other than what you naturally are. And yet It was a condemnation because you know you can't be. And so you need to find a righteousness outside of yourself. So they were not saved by works in the Old Testament. They were not saved by self-righteousness. They were saved by trusting in the word. And wherever they were in that Old Testament era, they had to believe what was revealed to them by God. And that was credited to them as righteousness, which Romans 4 talks about David, talks about Abraham, talks about uh, uh, us. 
that, that believing in the word of God for what has been revealed to you, believing his words by faith, that faith is taken. And the faith, according to Ephesians 2, is given to us. So God gives you the faith to believe, and then God takes that faith and credits you with righteousness. So you can't even take credit for the faith. It's the same for them. This is all about God. This is why this man-centered gospel that we're often led into and saying, just, just pray this prayer. Just, do that. just before you leave, sign this card. I, I, you know, I, I got to get my quota or I want to report to people or whatever it is. God will do it. And yet he expects us to proclaim what we know to be true. And this is hard for the very things we started out with, the fear of man, lack of knowledge, um, the idea that... Um, uh, that maybe somehow sins in our own life. All of those, we need to deal with those excuses and we need to carry on. And so that, that's my encouragement for this year, that we, we become more passionate about proclaiming the best news, the greatest news, the, 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 the topic of all topics, which is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the fact that uh, we see who you are laid out in this passage. We thank you for Paul's compassion for those who are around him. Help us to have that same kind of compassion. May our spirits be stirred up by those who are around us, that we would have the conviction to stand up against our fears and, um, and really proclaim the good news. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, use Uh, us however you'd will. And I pray, Lord, that this group would also, you say in John 13, that um, by this all men will know that you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. There will be a love and a care for each other in this group that people look at it and say, behold, how they love one another, and they will see a difference. So use us as a light. Use us as your hands and feet for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.